Good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. Glad that you are uh, with us. Uh, we have a great privilege today of uh, not only going to uh, God's Word, but we have the great privilege of coming together and taking the Lord's Supper together. So it's a great morning of uh, worship. Uh, I don't have any announcements that I've been given, so why don't you just take your Bible and open to the book of John. We'll just get right to it. John chapter 17. John 17, again, let me just uh, read the first five verses. And Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given to me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for uh, an opportunity to worship you. Uh, we're thankful for your word that so encourages our heart and helps us to understand deeper uh, your love for us and the love of the Savior. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Guide us, I pray, this hour as we uh, study these verses. Make them come alive into our heart and then use your word to transform and change us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are again, 17th chapter. It's a tremendous privilege to uh, gather always around the word of God. It's a tremendous encouragement, I think, to be in the 17th chapter. 17th chapter, I told you, it's really a, a an amazing, uh, remarkable portion of Scripture. And we have the great privilege of uh, walking with the Lord Jesus, as it were, into the very throne room of God as we have an opportunity to hear the Lord's prayer to His Father. As I've told you, we are well past midnight. The evening started uh, Thursday, but we're well past midnight early on Friday morning. We're literally just an hours, hours away before the arrest and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, we have come, the Lord says, we've come to this most monumental hour in human history. And, and the Lord acknowledges that in verse 1. He says the hour had come. Again, the greatest hour of human history. Uh, the hour that was planned for all eternity. The hour which Christ came into the world. Uh, the hour that the Son of Man is going to be glorified on the cross of Calvary. When he will be the sin bearer. When he will be our substitute that we all desperately need to have our sins forgiven and have reconciliation occur between a God and ourselves uh, through the shed blood of this perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that very hour that sin and death and the devil uh, are dealt with when they are defeated uh, finally and eternally. Now, obviously, from the position of the disciples before the cross, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, it is unthinkable to them that the Messiah would be... Uh, uh, the death of the Messiah would be essential and deliberate as part of God's eternal plan. Even though the Lord had told them several times that uh, he was going to Jer Jerusalem, he was going to be mistreated, he would be abused, turned over to the authorities, and then murdered. It would not really be until after the Lord's death and resurrection that the disciples would begin to understand uh, why Christ's death was necessary in order that he might be the perfect substitute uh, to reconcile sinners to God through the cross. And then in more fully, uh, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, would the disciples realize uh, the meaning of the death of Christ, again, as a central part of God's uh, eternal plan all along. That's why when you stop and think about it, Peter, uh, who is a man who uh, liked to talk, he tried to stand up and uh, stop the Lord from going to the cross. Remember back in Matthew 16, he tries to stop the Lord there, but after uh, the resurrection, he preaches a great message of hope. Back in Matthew 16, verse 21, the text says, At that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Verse 22 of that chapter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but men's. And then that same Peter, after the resurrection on the day of Pentecost, after the, at the coming of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, this very same Peter stands up and he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. 
This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So again, it's not until after the cross, not until after the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit that Peter and the other disciples get a proper perspective on the death of Christ. Uh, You see that very same sentiment of Peter echoed over in Acts chapter 4 in in an apostolic prayer, Acts chapter 4, verse 27. Peter and John, just to set the context, they had uh, healed the man who was lame from his uh, mother's womb, and they were arrested by the uh, religious authorities because they were preaching Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And they were commanded by the authorities to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And the the text says that the apostles lifted their voice to God in prayer. Verse 27, for truly in this city uh, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So again, the apostles are just standing up and acknowledging the fact after the coming of the Holy Spirit, after the resurrection, now we get it. Now we see what we didn't understand previously. And again, the Old Testament, as you know, predicted the death of the Messiah all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where there would be this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we see in the Old Testament the Messiah had been predicted he would come and he would suffer and die. You see that in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, you see it in Daniel 9, verse 26. That was part of God's plan. Uh, Part of God's plan from all eternity, uh, before the beginning of time. And that's what we looked at last Lord's Day together. Uh, From a variety of different texts in the New Testament, we stopped and looked at God's eternal plan of salvation, uh, that in eternity past, long ages ago, before the beginning of time, from before the foundation of the world, God in his electing love, determined by his own free will and his choice according to the purposes of his own grace, uh, independently and apart from any outside external influence, because in eternity past there was no one there except God himself. Therefore the Trinity, the Godhead, determined uh, and promised eternally to save a remnant of humanity whom they had not yet created, but they would. And that humanity would rebel against them in time. It would rebel against God in time. But again, because of God's grace, they would redeem humanity. There would be a redeemed humanity, and that redeemed humanity, uh, saved out of the infinite love of God, would be given from the Father to the Son as a love gift uh, from the Father to the Son. A redeemed humanity who would come and praise and honor and worship and adore and love the Lord Jesus Christ both in time and throughout eternity because he would be the one who would secure their salvation. He would be the one who would step from eternity into time. He would take on human flesh. He would become the Lamb of God slain for them, and he would be their substitute in order to win their salvation and redemption. And therefore, throughout all of eternity, that redeemed humanity will sing what? Worthy is the Lamb, right? Isn't that great? Worthy is the Lamb. For all eternity, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And we went through all that last time together, so if you weren't here, you might want to Stop and listen to that sermon and be encouraged. Be encouraged by the Word of God. Be encouraged by the Word of God and come to a proper perspective, a proper understanding of the fact that if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, it's not, some, it's not because of something you determined to do. If you're a believer, it's because God the Father gave you to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, before time began as an expression of His eternal love that the Father has for the Son. John 6 and 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come uh, down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44 of John chapter 6. The Lord says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So again, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, it's because the Father, God the Father chose you as a gift of his love to be given to his Son, and he has drawn you to Christ, and he will give you to his Son, and his Son, the Lord Jesus, keeps you forever, and in that day he will rise you up. So the fact is, when you look at salvation, while we're the beneficiaries of God's grace and kindness uh, through Christ in the issue of our salvation, the reality is the issue of God's eternal plan of salvation is not primarily about 
us getting saved or about us being saved. Uh, the issue is not really the glory of the sinner. The issue is the, 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 the glory of the Savior. That's the issue in salvation. We need to get a proper perspective on this issue. The issue in our salvation is not the glory of the sinner. The issue in our salvation is the glory of the Savior. And God's eternal plan of salvation, the goal of redemption, again, the goal of election really is to choose for the Son a bride who will forever and ever honor and worship and love and adore Him. So again, the truth is, I told you last time, the truth of the matter is when it comes to the issue of our salvation, we're really caught up into an eternal love story between the members of the Trinity for the exaltation of the Son, the honor of the Son, the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Son's primary concern in this, it likewise is not us, it's not the glory of the sinner, but his primary concern is for the honor and the glory of the Father. Uh, again, because of that perfect love gift that the Son has received uh, from the Father. And, and all those whom the Father gives him, the Son receives with infinite joy. He embraces the sinner as the Father draws more and more people to the person of Christ. And again, the Lord Jesus Christ considers that gift so precious, uh, that redeemed group of humanity eternally called by God the Father to be the bride of Christ. The Son guarantees he'll lose none of them. He'll lose none of those the Father has given him. They are eternally safe, eternally secure in Christ. So again, the truth is God's eternal plan is far beyond us. It's far beyond us, far greater than us. Again, we're but the beneficiaries of God's grace and kindness in Christ, but our salvation is caught up into the eternal promises of the Trinity. And because that's true, I don't think there could be anything more encouraging considering the issue of our eternal security in Christ. So again, I think if if all of this is true, and it is, then we have to realize that, listen, we've been the object of God's interest and current concern before the foundation of the world. We've been the the object of God's interest and concern before the foundation of the world. Because all these things that were determined in eternity past are worked out in time, and we have to constantly remind ourselves that. That there's nothing in this world that's going to happen in time that can move us away of the great hope and the promise that God has made for our eternal salvation in Christ. I really think that's in part why Paul takes up the pen in Romans 8 and says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. I really think that's why he writes. Uh, Romans 8 verse 31, if God's for us, who is uh, against us? Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come or powers or height or depth or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we should greatly be encouraged by that truth, right? By the truth of the word of God. That what God has done for us through Christ and, 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 and securing our eternal salvation, that should cause us always throughout life to be full of rejoicing, a full of glorifying God and glorifying Christ for the great salvation that we have. That should allow us to have a tremendous amount of comfort in all situations and to realize when we find ourselves anxious or fearful or worrying, it's because we've failed to understand to the, the, the depth that God wants us to understand uh, the greatness of our salvation, the greatness of our salvation and the eternal security we have in Christ, our eternally secure position in Christ. Isn't that good? Theology informs the mind, which talks to the heart, which makes your hands and feet do the right thing, right? But you have to have your brain engaged first. You have to come to a knowledge of the truth and then live that truth out and have that great hope that God wants you to have through Christ. It's a tremendous story. Now, last time we made it through uh, John uh, chapter or 17, verse 2. We made it through verse 2. But let me go back like I like to do and just start at the beginning just to get our mind around the text again. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So again, the Lord begins this prayer by asking that that eternal plan of redemption be consummated. Exactly had been, as had been sovereignly ordained. The hour has come. Again, the events of the cross are looming uh, ever closer in the distance. And again, notice the words that the Lord uses there, Father and your Son. Uh, again, expressing this deep, intimate, rich relationship, a, a familial relationship that the Lord Jesus Christ has with God the Father, which should be words that also encourage us in times of difficulty when we realize our what? 
our adoption, our sonship. We too can do what the Lord is doing, fleeing to the Father in heaven in times of difficulty because we've been brought into his family. So again, the son is asking the father to carry him through, help him to endure the events of the, the cross so that Jesus can accomplish the task for which the Father had given him, so that in turn, through the events of the cross and Christ's obedience to God's eternal plan, that Christ himself might have the opportunity to bring glory to the Father. So this prayer that Jesus is praying for himself, that he would be glorified, is really not a prayer by Jesus for himself in the usual way that we would understand that kind of a prayer for oneself, because the prayer, the, the request of the prayer really is the glorification of Christ at the cross in, in order that God's will might be done so that the Father would be glorified through Christ and his obedience, and the Father would be glorified through the events of, of the cross. So it's really a, a prayer for God's glory. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That's really the request. Now, we spoke about how the cross really displays God's glory in a variety of different ways and like no other event in human history. And again, the glory of Christ is one of the main themes in the Gospel of John. John mentions that fact of glory or glorify, one of those words, uh, no, no fewer than 42 times in that text. And again, the idea of glory or draw, is really drawing attention is kind of the idea here, uh, putting God on display. Back in John 12, verse 23, Jesus answered and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. A little bit further, verse 32, he says, And if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men, all men to myself. So that's how God is going to put Christ on display. He's going to lift him up. The cross is putting God on display. It reveals God who he is, his righteousness, his justice, uh, his holiness. His righteousness, his justice, his holiness that requires uh, the shed blood of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb unblemished and spotless in order that God's wrath against our sin might be turned away. And at the same time, on the cross, God demonstrates his mercy, his grace, his love, his compassion. He sends his son to die, uh, again, out of his tremendous love for us so he might die, Christ might die in our place in the place of undeserving, guilty sinners such as us, the sinless one is sacrificed. So again, it's at the cross where God is put on display. It's on the cross where, where, where God is displaying his, his, his attributes. It's on the cross where, where God puts his power on display, his power over sin, his power over death, his power over the devil. It's at the cross where God puts on display his infinite wisdom that the rulers of this world could not comprehend. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh or over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So again, here's Jesus. He claims he has authority over all mankind. He has authority over all flesh. He's claiming that he has the authority to determine the ultimate destiny of all men. He has the authority to determine the ultimate destiny of all men, which in the words of another says this. He says, this gives us new hope for evangelism and missionary work, knowing that Jesus has authority over all flesh. Even those who reject Jesus or who are ignorant of him, even if they do not know it or acknowledge it, Jesus has authority over them. Therefore, he says, we can pray in faith and ask Jesus to exercise that authority over those who have not yet repented and believed. Isn't that good? Jesus has the authority over all mankind. So while we should talk the truth to a, a loved one that you're trying to evangelize, uh, you probably need to go to God before you go to the sinner and pray that God in his kindness would open that person's heart and the authority of Christ would be exercised that the person would see the glory of the Savior in their desperate need of him. Jesus said, look, you gave me, you gave him authority right over all of mankind. The, all that you have given me or all that you've given him it says in the text and i told you that phrase is repeated a number of times in the chapter seven times in this uh, 17th chapter so there's an authority that christ has over all the world but there's also an authority that christ has over all whom you have given me a select group of people a select group of people that god has chosen from eternity past to belong to the son uh, to receive salvation those who are dead in trespasses and sins those who are alienated from god those who are by nature children of wrath 
Those who, by God and his great grace and compassion, he, God, has made alive together with Christ and by grace alone saved. All whom you have given. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even if you give him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, here it is, he may give eternal life. So Jesus, again, looking at the events of the cross, coming soon. Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him. Let him, glorify him by let him give eternal life to those whom the Father has chosen to give him. And one of the main emphasis in John's gospel is the fact that life belongs to Christ. Life belongs to Jesus Christ. John 1 verse 4, in him was life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 5.21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he wishes. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John 5.26, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. John 6.40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. John 6.47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. John 6.48, I am the bread of life. John 10 and 10, the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? He who believes in me will live even if he dies. At John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I've said it many times throughout our study, the entire purpose of the gospel of John is summed up in John chapter 20, verse 31. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. I don't know if you guys are catching it. There's a pattern here, right? You might have life in his name. Life belongs to Jesus Christ. In fact, over in 1 John five eleven, John says the testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 20 of that chapter, 1 John 5, the Son, His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Right? So the, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying to the Father that God the Father would glorify Him through his sovereign, eternal plan that involves, again, the Lord Jesus Christ coming at a time, giving up his life uh, on Calvary's cross as mankind's only substitute for the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation. Again, to all that select groups, all whom the Father had given him, in order that Jesus Christ might come and give them what? Eternal life, right? He might give them eternal life. And eternal life comes to men through Christ by just simply believing Faith in Christ alone, apart from works, apart from merit, apart from human effort of any kind. Eternal life comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Back in chapter 3, uh, the Lord emphasizes that fact to Nicodemus. You remember the story, John 3, verse 14. The Lord speaking to Nicodemus, uh, John three fourteen. the Lord said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, here it is, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the grand purpose of God's eternal sovereign plan is to give eternal life through his Son. It's accomplished by Christ on the cross. It glorifies the Father, it glorifies the Son uh, through the work of uh, redemption by Christ. And again, I think when we become overly subjective, overly concerned about self, uh, we forget that the chief end of our salvation is God's glory, not ours. And I think when we do that, when we start focusing on ourselves so much, we lose some of the greatness of the gospel. We, we fail completely to remember what Paul said over in Ephesians 1. 
He said that God predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Here it is, to the praise of the glory of his grace, or to the praise of his glorious grace, depending on your translation, right? It's all about God. It's all about God's glory. And the essence of eternal life that Christ wants to give, that glorifies himself and glorifies the Father, is that we may know the only true God in Jesus Christ. That's verse 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's a fascinating text. There's a lot in that text that would uh, encourage our heart, but I think you have to back away first a little bit and ask exactly what does it mean. So what do you think about your, in your own mind? What do you think about when you hear the phrase eternal life? Now, a lot of people, when they hear that term eternal life, they think of heaven. It means going to heaven. So they start thinking along the lines of time without end, just forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But that can't possibly be the meaning of eternal life because in heaven there is no time. And heaven is just the everlasting present. So what is eternal life? One commentator says this. He says, the essence of eternal life is participation in the blessed everlasting life of Christ through our union with him. That's good. Another one offers this. He says, life is active involvement with one's environment. Death is the cessation of involvement with that environment, whether it be physical or personal. So we're going to go into a different realm, right? Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? That's good. Another writer says this, eternal life means that we are alive and active to God's environment. If God is in his spiritual environment, If God in his spiritual environment does not affect and even dominate our life, then it can be said that we do not have or experience or have experienced eternal life. This is true. Then he says we just live life in the same dimension that animals live and we exist as if dead uh, to God's environment. I, I like that one. What's eternal life? You've just stepped into a different realm. You've just experienced something that Christians experience now and forever that brings them into a living relationship with a living God that has to affect and dominate their life presently. That that changes them, that transforms them forever. That's why Jesus begins to explain eternal life like like this. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. So again, he's speaking to his Father about all those whom the Father has given him, all those that Christ will give eternal life. And he says, this is eternal life that they, that group, might know you. So again, the the eternal life, Jesus says, comes from nothing less than a, a true knowledge of God himself. Eternal life comes from nothing less than a true knowledge of the person of God. That's exactly what God said to the prophet back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. So again, God says through the prophet that the greatest thing in the entire world is to know him, to have a relationship with him. He says to know him and to have a relationship with him is far greater than attaining any kind of worldly power or, or worldly riches or worldly knowledge because that's the reason why we have been created. That's the reason why we've been created, to know God, to have a relationship with him, to have a relationship with our creator. In the absence of that reality really is a large part or a large reason for the chaos that you see in the world around us everywhere because men have no knowledge of the true God. Now, it's one thing on a worldly level for men to have no knowledge of the true God, but it's really sad when there's many professing Christians that seem to struggle in the same affairs of life and are discouraged often to the point of despair as they kind of stumble and blunder through life as though they were blindfolded with no sense of direction, no sense of purpose, no sense of understanding, because they too have lost in great, uh, a great amount uh, the knowledge of the true God. You stop and think about this, and if you're old enough, you remember this, but there was a time in our churches where children were re- uh, regularly catechized by their parents, and the adult members were expected to know the answers to questions such as, what is the chief end of man? 
And the chief end of man, the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures, the Old and New Testament. It's the only rule to direct us how we might glorify and enjoy him. Question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? Answer, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in his being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But sadly, for the most part, in our churches collectively, most parents in most churches don't do that anymore. Therefore, there's a whole lot of people who make professions of faith of believing in Jesus, but they don't know truth. They don't know biblical truth, children and adults. Therefore, they've lost contact with why they were made. They've lost contact for the, with the, their purpose in life because they no longer know God. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Gnosko is the word for know, and it's much more than just an intellectual understanding, intellectual knowledge. Behind the word gnosko, know, that they may know you, it really is a deep, intimate, personal love relationship. I think you see that earlier in John's uh, Gospel, John 10, verse 14, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay, my down, lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. There's a love relationship there that he's willing to lay his life down so that they might be saved and redeemed. And Jesus says, look, eternal life is this, that you know that, that, that you may be known, that God may be known. Eternal life, that they may, this is eternal life, that they may know you. So genuine salvation, at the moment of genuine salvation, at the moment you believe, you enter into this deep personal love relationship with God that has to, that must, that continues to grow and grow and extends throughout time, throughout all of eternity. A deepening relationship with the living God. First John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us why do i love god because he loved us right he loved us first we love because he first loved us romans 5 8 you know this one god demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were wet sinners there's a relationship there an eternal relationship carried out in time so at the moment you come to salvation your relationship with god the father changes you're removed from being under the realm of condemnation you're removed from the realm of wrath and you're brought into the family reconciled adopted as his children, loved by him. And we, in turn, we return that love to God our Father. So again, this knowledge that Christ is speaking about, again, it's not just knowledge about God, it's actually knowing him. And again, this life-giving knowledge of the Father, this personal knowledge of God is not just an academic awareness, it's a true relationship. Adam knew his wife. Doesn't mean he just knew she was in the garden somewhere. There's a deeper meaning behind the word. A true relationship. An experimental relationship, not not a mechanical relationship, a true knowledge. So a true knowledge of God is to enter into a transforming experience with him. Therefore, if we truly know him, then we can never be the same sinful people that we once were. Right? If we truly know him, then we can never be the same sinful people we were. Because now we live in fellowship with him. We live in fellowship with him. We're devoted to him. We devote ourselves to his word. We have a great passion and energy for our God. Those who truly know their God cannot sit idly by while their God is being blasphemed or defied or disregarded by the unbelieving world around them. There is an internal drive to get up and do something when someone dishonors the name. If you truly know God, then you'll walk with him daily. You'll walk with him faithfully. You'll lift your heart to him often in prayer. You'll honor him in practical obedience to his command. 
and you will experience more and more deeply this knowledge of him, this knowledge of God. And by the power of his grace, you will always be thinking great thoughts about him. And you will always have great boldness for him. And you'll always have great contentment in him. This is eternal life, that they may know you. J.C. Ryle offers this. He says, of course, we must distinctively understand that mere head knowledge like that of the devil is not meant by our Lord in this verse. The knowledge he means is a knowledge which dwells in the heart as well as in the head and influences the life. Isn't that good? It's a knowledge that dwells in the heart as well as the head, but it influences the life. That's the kind of knowledge he's talking about. And you know the sad reality is the Lord Jesus Christ himself says there are going to be many who come to him on the day of judgment who claim to be uh, in that category. They came to be followers of Christ, but they really never knew him. They never had a true relationship with him. They were false professors whom Jesus will say to them, Matthew 7, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The vast difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Vast difference. This is eternal life that they may know you. That's why Paul said, look, I'm going to, I've got a lot of goals in my life, but I'm going to move this one to number one. This is going to be the chief goal in my life is to know the Lord. And Paul says, look, knowledge of the Lord, knowledge of God is worth to me more than anything else in the world. Philippians 3 verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The surpassing value of knowing God, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Again, this is eternal life. That they might know you personally, intimately, passionately. One old uh, Puritan writer a guy named Scrogel said this. He put it like this. He says, this is eternal life. It's the life of God in the soul of man. The life of God in the soul of man. And how do we know him? Well, we know him by his word. We know him through his word. Right? That's where we come. That's where he reveals himself to us. His nature, his character. Again, his immense love for us. And it's the scripture that reveals to us his, his holiness, his sovereignty, his power, his justice, his mercy, his truth. And again, knowing him, knowing God is our greatest, most urgent need. It was the prophet Hosea who pointed this out, that people in his day, he said, were destroyed for a lack of knowledge, Hosea 4.6, and the same is true of our day, right? Back in the book of Judges, tells of all the calamities when a generation arose who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel, Judges 2 verse 10. And again, that's a great reminder to us as parents. We have a great, urgent task of passing on to the next generation the Bible's revelation about God, who he is, his great work for us, his love for us, the salvation that we find in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that truth that we desperately need to know, and we need to know a, a, a deeper understanding and grow and grow more in that knowledge of truth and then pass that knowledge on to our children. So there won't be another generation in front of us that didn't know the great work that God had done for Israel. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Then the Lord adds this. He says, the only true God. And again, note the words only and true. What, what Jesus is doing is he's presenting a truth in the form of a contrast. He's saying we've got to be absolutely certain of the God whom we say we believe in, of the God whom we claim to know. We better make sure he's the only true God. It really is a warning against idolatry. It's a warning against uh, false gods. And I think that statement also is a great reminder to us that the opposite of knowing God is not knowledge of no God, but rather belief in false gods. It's a great reminder to us that the opposite of knowing God is not knowing of no God, but rather it's belief in the false gods. Right? If you don't believe the true God, you're going to believe in that which is a lie. Again, in John's epistle, 
uh, John, First uh, uh, John five verse ten, he says, "We know this that the Son of God has come into the world and given us understanding, in order that we might know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son uh, uh, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life." That's First John five verse twenty. The next words out of his mouth, verse 21, immediately, little children, guard yourself from idols. If you don't know the true God, you're going to fall in, fall in for an idol. And I think the warning today is as necessary as it was in the first century. We need to make sure we're worshiping the true and the living God. Because the world is full of idols, and our hearts are idol factories. Now, I get it. There's probably not many people today, maybe a few, but probably not many people worshiping God's made out of stone or wood or old pagan deities, although that practice is returning. But nonetheless, there are people who are worshiping in vanity that which is not God. And you see it everywhere. All the vain philosophies of a fallen world and how it affects and infects everything, such as evolution. It's everywhere. Secular humanism. Everywhere. And probably what I would maybe move up to the top of the most uh, prominent world religion, climate theology. Because that's what it is. It's religion. It's nothing more than the worship of the creation rather than the creator. Rampant everywhere. The newest religion on the block. And of course, you could add to that all the, all the idols of uh, money and pleasure and sex and power. Anything you put at the end of this sentence, I would feel happy and secure if I had fill in the blank. Anything that you'd put at the end of that sentence and everything that you'd put in that space but God himself is an idol. That's a, the, the, the God that you're worshiping, the little g God. And that's why it's vitally important for us again to know God, the true and the living God, and to serve him only. Because those who truly know their God, they love him. And they're satisfied in him only, not in idols. Those who truly know their God, they love him They're satisfied in him, in him only, not in idols. So again, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And again, to know that only true God, you have to repent, you have to turn from your sin, you have to receive him by faith. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So to truly know God, you must believe that he is a person. He is not some kind of uh, great force or energy or power. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Remember when Moses was interacting with God and he says, look, uh, who shall I say sent me? And he says, what is your name? And, and God said, I am that I am. And I am that I am. Not a power, but a person. Not, not an abstract uh, concept, not a philosophy, but a living person, the creator, the sustainer, the living God. Lloyd-Jones has a great comment on the false gods of the Old Testament that people worship throughout the uh, Old Testament period. He says this, he says, I commend your study to Isaiah 46, where the prophet mocks the false god of Baal that the foolish children of Israel, Israel had been worshiping. They had to carry him from one place to another because he could not walk. Lloyd-Jones asks, why worship such a god when you have a god who will carry you? That's a pretty good question. Why worship the false gods of the culture? Why worship the false gods of all the false religions that you have to carry when the true and the living God, if you repent and come to him, he'll carry you. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and here it is, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So immediately we're told that Jesus Christ, or we're told that the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom God has sent, they're equal. Jesus is putting himself in the same category as the only true and the living God. And he's the only one on the face of the earth that can do that. He's the only one on the face of the earth that can make that claim legitimately. And I do think it's worth noting, this is the only place in the New Testament where the Lord actually calls himself Jesus Christ. And again, in doing so, he's affirming his deity. He's saying that he is the only true Christ. He's the only true Messiah. He is the anointed one from eternity past. And just like he is repudiating the uh, false uh, notions of false gods, he's repudiating, repudiating all false notions of false messiahs. And throughout the history of uh, the world, there have been many of them. 
But Jesus is the only true Christ. He is the only true Messiah. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, there's certain foolish uh, individuals throughout history, the Arians, who would, uh, the modern-day version of that would be Jehovah's Witnesses, the Socinians, which is kind of an eclectic group of all kinds of air. But there have been certain groups throughout history have tried to take that phrase when Jesus says the only true God, and they've tried to use that phrase and prove their fallacious uh, theory that Jesus never claimed divinity. They say there's only one God, only one true God, and Jesus Christ is not God. But again, that, that's not what Jesus says here. Repeated over and over in the New Testament. That's not what he's claiming. So the whole idea here that these guys, the Arians, the Socinians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc. and so forth, the whole, title, whole idea is foolish. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus reminds us of the truth of his incarnation. Right? He is the eternal Son of God who has made man, the man Jesus. And the man who is Jesus is God of very God. He's the one who's co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. He's the one who is eternally present face-to-face with God before time began. You remember at the beginning of the book, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. So all claims that Jesus never claimed to be deity are absolutely fallacious. He's the Christ, Jesus Christ. Again, the God who's the Messiah, the man who's the Messiah, the God-man who's the Messiah, the one who's been anointed to do, again, a special work of reconciling God and man, that uh, to bring God and man back into right relationship. And he's the only one that can do that. He's the only one that can redeem. He's the only one that can bring, bring man and God back in right relationship. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can give men what they desperately need, is life. And the true knowledge of God comes only by faith in him, by G- faith in Jesus Christ. Again, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So it's only through Jesus Christ that sinners come to access the knowledge of the true God. It's only through the true saving work of his Son, especially the Son's sin-atoning death on the cross that grants to those who believe eternal life. This is eternal life. They may come to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, again, whom you've sent. You can't know God apart from Christ. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we must realize that Jesus Christ gives us uh, the revelation of God that no one else can. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father has declared him, as it says in John 1, 18. He that has seen me, Christ says, has seen the Father, John 14, 9. Lloyd-Jones says, Jesus has manifested and revealed God to us. He has taught, to us, taught us about him, yes, but you see he has gone further. He has not only declared him, here it is, he has also taken out of the way the things that prevented our being in communion with him, as he, Christ, has removed the barrier of sin. And if he had not done that, the knowledge of the revelation of the word of God would avail us nothing, right? It's Jesus Christ who we need to come to remove the barrier of sin so we can see the truth about who he is and the truth about who God the Father is. And it's only through the person of Jesus Christ that we can ever come to know the true and the living God. And it's this person of the Lord Jesus Christ who's been sent is the one who gives us uh, not only a knowledge of God, but he gives us life, the very life of God. Think about Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. He says, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We're fallen in Adam, right? We're dead in trespasses and sins. But we're raised in Christ, given eternal life, regenerated, um, born again. We used to be related to Adam and death, but now saved, we are related to Christ and life, uh, incorporated into him, him into us. We're part of him. He's part of He's part of us. So we are united with Christ. We are, we are made partakers of the divine nature. And again, the essence of eternal life is participation in the life of Christ through our union with him. Because as believers, we have Christ's life in us. And because we have Christ's life in us, we have the spirit of God in us. Therefore, we possess the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, etc. of the Godhead. 
And to know God personally, to possess that eternal life that Christ provides the life of God means that you have a new life, a new power. You have new motivation, new purpose in life. That means that you're now governed by a new spirit entirely. That's why Paul could take up his pen in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, and say, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. So again, eternal life means to enjoy that intimate fellowship with God now and forever. And again, eternal life is not just quantity as living forever because the truth is unredeemed. People are going to live forever in hell because the Bible teaches there's eternal punishment, eternal everlasting punishment, conscious punishment for the wicked. But the eternal life that God wants to give us through Christ is a quality of life. Not a future possession, but a present reality. Well, how do you know if you have it? Well, that's probably a good question. How do you know you have it? How do you know if you have eternal life? Which really, in John's writing, the writing of the New Testament, really is a synonym for salvation. Uh, well, you confess your sin. Right? You confess your sin before a holy God. You receive God's provision of forgiveness by faith and salvation to the person of Christ alone. Uh, Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved for with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness with the mouth confesses resulting in salvation verse 13 of that chapter for whoever will call upon the name of the lord will be what saved that's eternal life again john 5 verse 24 the words of the lord truly truly i say to you he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me here it is has eternal life present possession doesn't come unto judgment but passed out of death into life 1 John 5, 13 again, These things I have written that you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Present possession. That's the kind of life God wants to give us through Christ. That's the kind of life that is available to us presently in time right now, which will go on in the remainder of our lives. And more importantly, it will go beyond death and the grave into eternity, future, when we are raised because Christ was raised. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have next word sent. So lastly, the knowledge of this true God only comes by this person who was sent into the world. There's no eternal life apart from him. There's no eternal life apart from the saving, atoning, propitiatory work that the Father sent Christ into the world to perform. And the word sent is kind of an interesting word. It has at least a threefold significance. Uh, again, I think it points, number one, to the deity of Christ. Right? Where, where, where is he sent from? Not Toledo. Right? He was sent from where? From heaven to the earth, right? From eternity into time. So it speaks to his deity. He is the eternal one. And again, the disciples acknowledge that in John chapter 6, verse 30. He says, we know that you know all things. What's that? Omniscience. That only belongs to God. We know that you know all things and you have no need for anyone to question you. We believe you came from God. We believe you're the eternal one. You were sent. The second meaning of the word sent speaks of the reality again of his incarnation. Uh, Galatians 4 and 4, in the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And lastly, this word sent, S-E-N-T, signifies the Lord's office as a mediator, redeemer. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator. Also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Titus 2.14, Jesus who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So it's the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father sent into the world to do, that provides for us eternal life. And again, the fact that God sent Christ into the world and the God the Father poured out Christ, poured out upon Christ His wrath for our sin, and upon the person of, of Jesus Christ, uh, who's our substitute. And, and Jesus Christ suffered in our place, uh, the sinless one punished, that God would not have to punish us who are the guilty. 
And God punishes this sinless son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross. He reveals that uh, his unyielding justice and his holiness, his wrath, that has to be expended upon sin. And sinners, if they're ever going to come into the presence of God, then they have to come with a fitting sacrifice or they will perish. And Jesus Christ is that only perfect sacrifice. And again, it's at the cross where the mercy and the love and the grace of that same holy God who must punish sin is offered freely as a gift to whoever wants it, to all who will believe. Again, the only acceptable sacrifice to come into the presence of sin, the only acceptable sacrifice to free us from the penalty of death that our sin deserves is the one whom God sent into the world to lay down his life for the sake of those whom God has chosen to pour his eternal love out upon as Christ bears that curse of sin and shame for us, the only acceptable sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, God reveals his mercy and grace, and listen, the, the, the door is wide open to eternal life for those who repent and believe. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time in your word this morning and thankful for this tremendously encouraging verse that tells us of the hope that we have in you, our God, and Christ, our Savior. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to make sure we know you, the true God. And that we're not caught up with false idols. And that we place our faith and our confidence not in our efforts or deeds, but completely upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's the only way that salvation is provided for us and our sin is forgiven. So we thank you, we praise you, we honor you as our God. Thank you for the privilege of allowing us to know you and for giving us eternal life, and thank you for giving us Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Take out from your bulletin the song sheet for this morning's worship as we continue on and go to the Lord's table. Isn't that an encouraging just verse there? I mean, that whole, the whole concept of that verse is just tremendous. I couldn't get past it, right? You, you saw that. I just couldn't get past it. It's just too good. Eternal life something that Christians experience now that brings us into a living knowledge and relationship with God through Christ that transforms and changes us. And again, the purpose for all we have been created. Why are we created? Why are we here? It's to know God. Most people, I I guarantee you, you ask people, (laughs) where are you going? And the next question, what are you for? They'll look at you like you have two heads. And I ask people that question all the time. Where are you going? What, What are you talking about? Well, you have a wife and kids, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Where are you going? I don't know. And I said, it's evident. I can see it in your life. You have no idea where you're going. What are you for? What? What were you made for? Right? This is not a hammer. Right? It's made for something else. We've been made to know God, and we've been made for God. If you don't know who you are or where you're going... You have no idea how to live your life. And that's most people in the world around us. They never stop long enough to think about it. And when you start telling them about the God that they've been created by and they've been created for and the purpose of their life is to know him, I think it opens doors. It's opened doors for me when I start talking to people. I never thought about that before. I know. I see your life. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm trying to be helpful. Right? We have been made for a fellowship with God. If you don't know him, the only way you can know him is through his word. So we've got to get people into the word. Right? That's where God reveals himself to us. That's where you learn about this God who's holy and just and righteous that has poured out his wrath upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our substitute out of the kindness of God because of the glory of his grace. He wants you to know him. He's not hidden on a hill under a box that you can't see. He wants you to know him. And you come and you know him and he gives you new life and you understand your purpose for life and uh, you see that old things pass away, new things have come and now you have a passion for God and passion for Christ that you never had before. You could begin to understand that the Father sent Christ into the world to do a work that we can't do. 
that the Father poured out his wrath upon Christ. Christ is our substitute. When you start coming to a knowledge of the true God, guess what? All the idols start falling off. Why would I worship a God I have to carry if I can worship a God who will carry me? Why would I worry about my life if God has everything ordained, my good, his good pleasure in my life, working all things out together for my good and for his glory, but I need to know him first. And the only way that you can know him is through the person of Jesus Christ, right? You have to get people to the truth. You have to get people to think. Most people are too much in a hurry. They don't think. I started that conversation out with a man about a year ago, and God in his kindness has been working in that man's life for a long time now, for about a year, and changing his life as he's starting to be exposed to the Word of God. And now he's taking up the book and showing it to his wife and, and, and the Bible, and the Bible's starting to change her life. That's the way it works. We don't know what we don't know. We know the truth. We know the truth of the living God because somebody was kind to share that truth with us, and so we pass that truth on. We come to the Lord's table to remember Christ as our substitute, to thank him, to worship him, to adore him, and honor him uh, by doing this in remembrance of him as he has commanded. So if you know the, the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a, a, a saint, uh, uh, you truly know the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're free to participate with us in the Lord's table. I always remind us that the elements are symbolic only. They just merely represent the body and the blood of Christ. They're not efficacious. Hold the elements um, and tell everybody is served. Uh, the restriction uh, on the Lord's table says uh, out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The man must examine himself in so doing as he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. So we always pause for a moment or two of quiet uh, meditation, self-examination, quiet prayer, confessing any known sin before we come to the Lord's table collectively. And again, we do that uh, together uh, to celebrate our, our union with each other in union with Christ. So just pause now for a few moments of quiet prayer, confession, uh, confess any known sin to the Lord, and we'll move forward here just in a moment. <clears throat>